Golf's not just a game and it's not played on just grass. Lawn Solutions Australia is the home of Australia's best sports turf varieties. For the world's best grasses like Tiff Tuff, Sir Grange, Primo and Trinity, contact Lawn Solutions Australia at lawnsolutionsaustralia.com.au. That's lawnsolutionsaustralia.com.au. Hello and welcome to episode 49 of The Thing About Golf, Golf Australia magazine's ongoing exploration of what draws people to this crazy game. My name's Rod Murray and alongside my colleague John Huggan, we bring you these in-depth interviews every two weeks with people from every imaginable facet of the game. On this episode, Huggy has managed to score some time with a man whose voice will be instantly recognisable to most as one of the game's longest-serving on-course analysts. Roger Maltby has been with the NBC Network since 1992. Some of our younger listeners may not even know that he was a very successful professional long before he ever held a microphone. John Huggan joins me now to give us a taste of what we can expect in this chat. Huggy, how do you know Roger Maltby? Uh, well, I, I know him from my, my time at, uh, at Golf Digest in the States, um, so which is a long time ago now. But, um, yeah, I mean, I was kind of drawn to him because I, I don't know how I found out, but his mother, uh, this is, you know, terrible bias on my part, but his mother was, his late mother was Scottish. She was from a place called Kirkintilloch, which is near Glasgow. Um, she was the, the classic GI bride, as Roger relates in the interview. I think the, he, his father was in the American Air Force during the Second World War and met his future wife at a dance, local dance, and three weeks later he proposed yeah. and whisked her back off to America. Yeah. So we, we, won't tell too much the, we won't tell too much of the story because it is indeed a fabulous no. one. Yeah. It's funny with TV commentators, isn't it, Huggy? I was thinking about this in relation to Maltby. I reckon I was well into my 20s before I understood that Richie Benno, a famous cricket commentator here in Australia, had actually <laughs> played for Australia. In my world yeah, and when I grew up, he was just a commentator, and Maltby would be that, wouldn't he, for a whole generation of golf fans. Yeah, well, I think he's got slightly regrets about that. I mean, you know, he was a hell of a good player. Sure. I mean, he won the the first Memorial Tournament, Jack Nicklaus's tournament. He, Roger Mulby won the first, the very first one, and the the famous playoff, um, which is well infamous in Australia, I guess, that Greg Norman lost to, to Larry Mize's chipping. Uh, Roger Mulby was one shot from being in that play. Mm. So, you know, hell of a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. No uh, no slouch. And, of course, the other thing about Maltby, which anybody who's done any sort of background checking will know, is that he's quite the character as well, Huggy, quite the raconteur, mm. isn't oh, he? Oh, yes. And uh, it's a side of his personality we don't really get to see, I guess, so much with the commentary. But what a fabulous storyteller he is and what some fabulous stories he's got. Yeah, he's a great, he's a great, uh, as you say, storyteller. And uh, he's, and maybe this is the Scottish half of his heritage, but he, he's, I think he... He has enjoyed a few refreshing alcoholic beverages in his time, so which he doesn't deny. I'm not telling tales out of school. No, indeed. In fact, I just read on Twitter the other day, right? I think it was Rob Lucetich said that Robert Mol- Roger Maltby is one of the greats to sit down and share a glass of wine and lunch with, and I don't, oh, I don't doubt that I, that would that, be. I, I can confirm that. I mean, I've, I've had many great chats with him. He's, uh, he's a fascinating character and great to listen to, which hopefully the... The listeners to this podcast will agree when they've heard it. I think they will. Last thing, Huggy, we often accuse television people of going too soft on people and you know, the, the relationship between networks and the tour and puts people in awkward positions. What's your take on Maltby and his commentary? I've always found him a really good analyst and he tends to stick to the goal. He does. Well, he's he's basically the on-course guy. So it, he's not on for – he doesn't get the chance to expand on much uh, when you're in that role. 
but he's very, very good at, um, obviously, he's having played at the level he did, he's incredibly good at describing the shot and what the options are and what the player is likely to do, which is why he's lasted as long as he has, I guess. Yeah, indeed he has, and we look forward to hearing some more of Roger Maltby, both on the television and in this chat. Thanks for joining me, Huggy, and we'll get on with Roger Maltby. My pleasure. Roger Mulby, thank you very much for coming on the Thing About Golf podcast. Um, I always start these things with the same question. What's the thing about golf for you? Well, uh, as I've gotten older and I'm not very good at the first 18 holes, it's become more about the 19th hole. <laughs> I'm still pretty good there. <laughs> Is that something to do with the uh, the Scottish blood in your veins? I know we we've talked uh, many years ago. You had a you've got quite a strong Scottish connection. Can you run me through that? Well, certainly. Uh, yeah, I don't know if my uh, affinity for uh, the spirit comes from uh, my background or my heritage, but my mother was uh, born in Kirkintilloch, just outside Glasgow, and. Uh, Met my father during the Second World War. He was a, a Yankee flyboy, flew P-47s, flew 98 missions. Uh, but she was a nurse, and they met at uh, some dance, a mixer thing. And like uh, three weeks later, my father uh, proposed, and they were married. And uh, He didn't hang about. Uh, 64 years. Pardon me? He didn't hang about then. No, 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 no. He knew what uh, he liked right away. <laughs> and uh, apparently it went both ways. So, yeah, a long marriage. I've lost them both. Just lost dad a couple of years ago and was still playing golf three days a week at age 94. So your mom was the classic GI bride. Absolutely. And dad would, uh, uh, I didn't learn this until later, but apparently after uh, the end of the war, uh it took so long to get the American troops uh, back from Europe uh, that it took almost a year for my mother to be able to be transported back. He was back in the States. They were married, and it took forever for her to get, get back to the States. Did she retain her Scottish accent? Only when angry at me. <laughs> so, so often then? And then, yes, <laughs> more often than it should have been. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. So in the in the years that followed, uh, how did you find yourself on a golf course for the first time? How did that develop? Wow, geez, we just uh, we uh, my father was a pharmacist, uh, and we moved uh, here in San Jose, California. Uh, we moved about a block off a golf course. And I have an older brother, uh, John, and how he did it, I don't know, but he found a couple of golf clubs. And uh, then we would find golf balls that the members hit over the fence and then we'd sneak onto the golf course and play. And, uh, of course, it was a private club. We didn't belong there. And we were escorted off the grounds a few times. And then finally, one day, the head professional, uh, who was head professional in our golf course for, I don't know, close to 50 years, I think. Uh, but at any rate, uh, said, get in my car, drove us home, uh, and said, they're good boys. They're not causing harm. They just want to play golf, but it's a private club. And uh, offered that if we worked around the golf shop, so on and so forth, uh, that he would teach us how to play the game. And my father, having never played golf, 
said, geez, you guys really like this game. Oh, yes, Pop, we really do. And so he tried it. Sure enough, we joined the club. He liked it. And uh, that remains my home golf course to this day, San Jose Country Club. And how long did it take for um, the young Maltby to show some promise? Well, it uh, it was kind of funny. <laughs> the the old uh, assistant pro now passed away, but would tell for years that uh, my brother was almost five years older than me. And so he and dad would go out to play golf and uh, I would want to join them. And uh, my dad said, you know, one day when you get a little better, a little bigger, a little better, a little older, then you can play with us. And I guess I threw kind of a tantrum on the first tee and pointed at him and said, someday you're going to want to play golf with me. And uh, uh, I guess, you know, I, I golf at the beginning wasn't my favorite sport. I loved baseball. Uh but I was just another little, another kid, just another little kid at baseball and other sports. And at golf at a young age, you know, other kids would look at me and say, hey, that's one of the guys we got to beat, you know. And uh, I think kids tend to gravitate to what they do best. And, uh, you know, by the time I was 13, 14, then it was the only sport I played in. And um, I had pretty well decided what path I wanted to go on. Yeah. I looked up, um, you know, I did some research, as I tend to do before these things, and I I noticed that you were in high school with Forrest Fesler. Yes, absolutely. Uh, And, you know, it's uh, very interesting. We lost Forrest a couple of years ago um, to uh, uh, a brain cancer and sad, uh, miss him. And he was a great player, a great player as a junior and uh, uh, was a spectacular player as a junior and into his adult years uh, uh, plagued by injury. But at any rate, he was two years older than I. So he was a junior in high school when I was a freshman and he was the number one man on the golf team. And I was the number two man on the golf team. And uh, he beat my fanny every day. And it drove me, it drove me crazy. Now, I don't know. Uh, I don't, I don't know what it is in me. I mean, you could have easily, you know, said I can't beat him. So, I'll, you know, but I, I just, I'm going to beat him someday. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And uh, it was, it was funny in our, in our soft, my sophomore year, his senior year, uh, the, the Santa Clara County, high school championship was being played and he had a car. So he gave me a ride to the tournament. Well, as it turns out, we both tied uh, at two under par 70 on a golf course called Santa Teresa and went into a playoff and I beat him on the second hole of the playoff. I made birdie. He was so mad. He left me there. (laughs) (laughs) But it was, it's, you know, I really credit him for always showing me what excellence was like and making me point my compass in that direction. So I owe him the world for that. I'm sure in retrospect, that was maybe the best thing that ever happened to you was to have him, somebody like him to aim at at that age. Absolutely. Without, without doubt, there's no question. And when I got on the tour, he was already out there, you know, 
He nearly won the U.S. Open in 1974, the massacre at Wingfoot. Indeed, wearing shorts on one hole, I remember. <laughs> well, that was later. Oh, oh, was it? Okay. Yeah. Right. yeah. He always kind of danced to the beat of a different drummer. But uh, at any rate, uh, uh, he was a heck of a player, showed me the ropes when I first came out, and uh, was one of the guys that, that made me learn that uh, you just can't make too many birdies. It's pretty much impossible to make too many birdies. Kind of changed my wiring, yeah. I actually have a, a, a kind of tenuous link to Forrest Fesler in that I, I caddied for him in the 1980 Tallahassee Open, believe it wow. or not. Wow. And he hit that week, he hit 66 greens out of 72 in regulation or better and shot one over par. His putting by then, had it wasn't pretty, let me tell you. Wow. Well, you know, he he was good when he was a kid. When he was a junior in high school, for all the matches and whatnot we played in qualifying, he averaged 68.6 for the year, which, you know, as a kid of 16, that's pretty good. <laughs> you know, he was quite the player. Um, you, you mentioned very briefly there uh, Hale Irwin. Um, I was going to ask you about him but yeah, a little bit later, but we'll get to it now since you bring him up. Um, there's a famous story, and I, I don't know how apocryphal this whole thing is, but Hale Irwin ended up not talking to you for six months, I hear. Um, run me run me through that story from start to finish at the 76 Memorial, I think it was. <laughs> well, uh, there was the first Memorial Tournament, the inaugural Memorial Tournament, and uh, it was one of those very rare years, uh, the course A being in a within B, it was the dry year. We didn't, we didn't have any range. The course played hard and fast uh, and extremely tough. And uh, I was leading after three rounds. And then in the fourth, the final round, I made 14 pars and four bogeys. I shot 76 to finish at 288. But up ahead of me was Hale Irwin, who was putting on a tremendous charge playing well he hit a ball out of bounds on the 15th hole anyway we deadlock at even par and of course you know Hale Irwin by this point is a a man of conspicuous breed I mean he is a major <laughs> championship yes. winner yeah you know he's he's a, a fabulous player and uh and I have to cre credit my uh my late caddy Jeff Burrell who, when we got to the 15th tee, Jack had wanted a three-hole playoff. And it was the first of its kind and got CBS to sign off on the PGA Tour. So the playoff started on 15, and I got there. Hale had finished earlier. I got there second. And I, I went up to shake uh, Hale's hand and wish him good luck. and. It's it's fair to say it was a dispirited handshake I received in return. <laughs> yeah, he was quite a fierce competitor, okay. wasn't he? Really? Yeah. So you know, I'm standing there, and I don't know if my caddy could sense or not, but you know, as I'm standing there, you know, well, Hale thinks he's going to win, Jack thinks he's going to win, and everybody else watching thinks he's going to win. So at any rate, my caddy whispers in my ear. He says this guy thinks he's going to win. And I had to laugh and it, it, all the pressure of the moment went away. So we have 
15 to five par with birdies. Uh, we both parred 16 to three par. So 17 now is sudden death. We're even after the two holes. And we both drive it in the fairway. I'm slightly away. And I pull hook my second shot left of the green. And all of a sudden, there's a commotion. And my ball comes careening onto the center of the green. And at first, my fear was I hit somebody right in the forehead, <laughs> you know, and hurt somebody. Well, when we got up there, well, I should say next, Hale was none too pleased at that. <laughs> and, and then played his second shot to about 10 feet from the hole. Uh, played a wonderful foreign into the green. So uh, when we got to the green, we learned that it hit a gallery rope stake that held up the ropes, a piece of galvanized steel. So I missed my putt, tapped in. I walked to the side and I took my glove off and handed it to my caddy. He says, what are you doing? And I said, this guy ain't Hale Irwin because he misses these to win. And it was not a particularly hard putt. Uh, but by gosh, he missed. Well, in the next hole, uh, I drove it in the fairway and he kind of hit it up by some trees. Anyway, I knocked it on the green, made a birdie putt, and uh, he was none too happy still. And back in the days, the first year, the uh, the media where you guys all hang out, the, the interview room and media room was in the cart barn, reeked of battery acid underneath the, the clubhouse. So after the presentation and all that, I walk in and uh, sit in the back of the room and Hale is on the dais being interviewed. Well, at that time, the doors come open behind me and a marshal comes in with this piece of rebar. And hands it to me, he says, thought you might like to have this. So as I thanked him and turned around, Hale is staring holes through me. And if you can't see my face, I'm, you know, for the, for the listener here, I am doing this with a smile on my yes. face. <laughs> yeah, so I can, I can confirm that, yes. Yeah, he's staring, staring holes through me. And I just kind of shrugged and, and, and kind of held it aloft a little bit. And he said, no, thanks. I've already had the shaft once today. <laughs> <laughs> and from then on, he did not speak to me for a good six months. So fast forward to 1977. And the Hawaiian Open played at Wailike Country Club on Oahu. And uh, the, the clubhouse was on one side of a road and you had to walk across it to get to the to golf course. And, and on the left was the ninth green as the, as the tournament played and with a lava rock wall there in Hale the week previously had won the Ben Crosby tournament after hooking a ball into the ocean on 18. I remember having that. a yeah. rock and careening up into the fairway. So he ends up winning in a playoff over Jim Nelford. Uh, goes on to birdie the hole and gets in a playoff with Jim Nelford, beats Jim in the playoffs. So as I walk up to him doing this interview, I stand right behind the cameraman nodding my head. And he had to stop the interview. And he looked at me and I said, it's funny how a golf ball can bounce, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Did he laugh? And, and, after, and after that, we were fine. Yes, he chuckled. 
of course he was there. He received the great break and, you know, and, and you learn if you have any introspective side that on any given golf shot, luck is a huge factor in giving a ridiculously good bounce when you need it the most makes it a exponentially. So, yeah, but, uh, you got to realize over the course of thousands of golf shots, luck doesn't have much to do with it. The ball always kind of goes where you hit it. Well, that's <laughs> true. That's true. But yeah. Anyway, yeah. I, I kind of jumped ahead of you there, uh, Roger, a little bit. Um, I wanted to talk to you about your, your rookie year, which uh, the year before yeah. you won Memorial. I mean, it's hugely successful, won twice. Uh, you were kind of off and running, but the, the, the story I do want to hear about is the, uh, you know, you probably told this a million times, but uh, you're in the bar, you've left the check. What happened? Come on. You know, it's, it's sad to think that all the really noteworthy things happened in my <laughs> life 46 years ago. Yeah. Well, no, we're only getting started. Don't worry. <laughs> so uh, at any rate, I had won uh, in the Quad Cities. Uh, now called the John Deere Classic, uh, but it was opposite the Open. And uh, so limited field kind of thing. The tournament barely got pulled together. Uh, anyway, I, I I win this event. And with that gets me in the Tournament of Champions, the Masters, all those good things. Uh, yeah. But first place was only $15,000. So which was all the money in the world to me at the time. Yeah. So the next tournament was in central Massachusetts uh, at Pleasant Valley Country Club and yeah. called the Pleasant Valley Classic. Um, at any rate, much bigger field, stronger field, $40,000 to first place. Well, uh, I... Uh, barely make the cut. I make the cut on the number one shot higher. And I don't see the weekend and Saturday dawns, the wind blew like crazy. I shot 66 and passed the world. And now I'm in the top 10. And on Sunday, the, it was breezy again, not quite as breezy as the day before, but another breezy day. So, but back then, this is hard to imagine. But I didn't even have a credit card. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I'm driving around in an old yellow Ford Galaxy 500 car and, you know, just thrilled to have the opportunity to play. And um, at any rate, uh, before the round, uh, we could cash personal checks. PGA Tour approved all that. And I cashed a check for $600. So I just had a feeling I was going to win. Why? I don't know. Uh, so at any rate, I shoot 67 and I win. So we go into uh, the clubhouse and I buy around. And then I look at this fellow that had befriended me, uh, that had been driving a courtesy car, driving me around that week. Uh, and I said, where do we go to have some fun? Well, he says a place called T.O. Flynn's in Worcester, Massachusetts. Off we go. I'm impressed, now, I'm impressed you can still remember the name of the bar. That's great. Well, uh, here's part of the story. The next morning when I came to, 
which which there's a very distinct difference between waking up and coming. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) I sat on the edge of my bed going, "What happened?" I don't know how long I sat there. It was it was a while before I even remembered I won a tournament the day before or (laughs) what the last two. Yeah, so I decide uh, at this point that I'm going to go down and buy a newspaper and read about just how cool I am. Yeah. 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 Right. You know? So, uh, I put my pants on. I don't have a dime, not a dollar, (laughs) nothing. And, you know, I'm, Oh boy. I knew I had 600 plus the day before and I'm searching around. What do I do now? And then it dawns on me. I don't have the check. Now I sit down on the edge of the bed again. Where was I? (laughs) (laughs) It was one of those. Yeah. So uh, I finally ascertained where I was and I called the restaurant and somebody who's in there cleaning up from the night before answers the phone. And I said, uh, geez, I I lost something there last night. Do you have a lost and found this? No. What is it you lost? And I said, well, it was a check for $40,000. Yes, $40,000. I said, yep. So, uh, well, we don't have it, you know. So I hang up the phone and I called out to the golf tournament, the benefactor owner of the golf course. And I think he owned most of central Massachusetts, a guy named Cuz Mangola. And I said, Cuz, I got a problem. He said, what kind of problem could you possibly have? And I said, well, I lost the winner's check last night in the bar. Now, you've all seen the pictures, you know, on 18 Green, the big cardboard yeah. dummy checks. Yeah, yeah. He handed, me the check. he handed me the real check. So in my pocket it went, you know. So <laughs> at any rate, now I go, boy, that's done. You know, he says, we'll stop payment, send you another one. I'll have a driver, bring it over to you. So. You know, now I get a phone call from the bar. It's the owner of the bar says, we found it. You know, and I said, well, um, I I just got it voided. They're sending me another check. Yeah. He says, well, would you mind if we kept it and framed it and put it behind the bar here as a bit of bar lore? <laughs> I said, help yourself. Yeah. So after hanging out that phone, this is a long story. Yeah, it's good. Uh, I like it. Yeah. But... <laughs> So after after that transpired, I got to thinking after I hung up on that phone call, I go, I don't have any cash. I don't have a credit card. So I called back out to Cousin Gold. I said, Cuz, have you sent the driver yet? He says, he's just going out the door now. I said, can you do me a favor? And he said, what's that? I said, can you make the check for 39000 and send me 1000 cash so I can get out of town? <laughs> so, that's what happened. Now let's fast forward to about, Oh, I'm going to guess five years ago. And uh, a golf writer such as yourself uh, worked for the golf channel. And, uh, and I apologize right now. I should know his name. I do know his name, but it's not coming to my lips right now. So at any rate, we were broadcasting one of the FedEx playoff events at the TPC of Boston and about a 40 minute drive away was Pleasant Valley. 
So on the Wednesday before the tournament, this writer goes up to play golf here. And he's talking to the golf professional and the pro shop before teeing off. And he's saying, geez, there's a lot of history here. Da, 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 da. This tournament was played for a number of years. And uh, he said, geez, this is where Malpy lost his check, right? And the pro looked at him and said, yeah. He says, I've got it in my desk. Wow. And he goes, what? He says, I've got the check, original check in my desk. And he says, you've got to be kidding. He says, no. So he took him into his office, opened the drawer and said, here it is. They closed down that bar and the bar sent it back to the club. So, excuse me. So he says, well, don't you think Roger'd like to have that? And he goes, well, yeah, I suppose he would. Yeah. So a couple of days later, he drove down to the golf course and presented me Brilliant. the check he hadn't seen in 40 years. It was very funny. Where is it Where is it hanging now? It's not hanging, but it is in my office. I'm one of those guys, John, if you walked into my house, you would be very hard-pressed to tell I was a golfer. Right, okay. I, 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 I've been in many uh, great players' homes uh, that seemed like a shrine to them, and I'm not really much for that. So uh, there's no trophies on display. There may be the occasional photo you could tie me to golf, but uh, – Nah, I just don't do that stuff. Well, I'm, 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 I am hoping that there is something that you've still got. Um, my memory of you back in that sort of period we're talking about is um, the outrageous trousers that you used to wear. Have you still got some of them hanging around? Now I take great personal offense at that. <laughs> <laughs> you watch how these kids dress now? Well, that's true. But yeah, you would fit right well, in there. Well, yeah, or in the day back then, you remember how Johnny Miller dressed? Yes, yes. Exactly. Now, those trousers that I wore when I won the Memorial Tournament, I wore twice. I finished third in them, and I finished first in them. And if 1976, if you recall, was the bicentennial year of the United States. Yes. So this was my red, white, and blue tribute to the good old U.S. of A. <laughs> now. <laughs> I do agree with you. They were absolutely hideous. So <laughs> we had a little party when I got home, my buddies and I, and now I've made $55,000 in two weeks and I am really running. And so we had a few and we torched them. <laughs> we, we lit them up. We put a little lighter fluid on them and boom, there they go. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm sad to hear yeah, that. They had a good history though. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, excuse me, not too long after that, um, again, one of my lasting memories of you is um, I I tell people when they ask me about Roger Maltby and, you know, did that guy ever play golf, which I'll get asked, you probably hear that question as well sometimes. But I always say, yeah, Roger Maltby, Roger Maltby is the guy who led the Open at Turnberry at the halfway stage before Nicholas and Watson lapped the field. And they go, what? I said, yeah, Roger Maltby was leading the field at, at Turnbury in 1977. What's your memories winner. of that? Yeah, winner, winner, chicken dinner. You yeah. win a lot of trivia contests yeah. with that. <laughs> but I did. You're right. Uh, uh, and do, do you know who caddied for me that, that week? Oh, now there's a good question. Oh, you've got me there. Yeah. yeah. See if you get this one. Nah. 
It wasn't Steve Williams, Dennis, was it? Dennis Watson. Oh, right. Of course. Yeah. A, a young, at the time, Zimbabwean professional yeah. that had come and attempted to qualify for the Open, did not make it, was sitting around the putting green after that and going, you know, looking for somebody. And by gosh, we hooked up. And years later now, you go from 77 to 1985, and he and I are paired together in the last round of the World Series of wow. Golf at Firestone. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I was fortunate to come out on top that day. But, but yeah, that's kind of funny how the world works. Yeah. yeah. So, what, so what's your memories of Turnbury 77? Wow. Well, you see, first of all, uh, I took my mom and dad back with me. Um, my father was, sh- uh, well, uh, not shot down but had to eject uh, over occupied France and came upon a farmhouse. And we'll tell you the story how the, the Nazis were shooting holes in his parachute and all that. And anyway, escaped to a farmhouse that happened to be connected with the French underground, got him falsified papers, this and that. He became Francois Le Gouillac. <laughs> At any rate, wow. they got him out of there. They got him out of there. Um, uh, he went back with my mom, the same family lived in that house. Get away. Jeez. Yeah. He found the house and, uh, you know, what can I do with you? He said the, they were still washing clothes, pounding them on a rock, that kind of stuff, you know? And so he bought them a washer and dryer. Oh, what a great story. About, yeah. That's my, that's, that's my greatest memory. Other than that. Of course, I had never played Lynx golf. I'd never played golf over there. Yeah, uh, but I immediately took a fancy to it. Uh, you know, uh, there are many Americans that don't take yeah. a fancy to it. It is quite unlike the game played in the states. Yeah. Uh, but to me, you know, the nature of the game in my very favorite golf courses are there's very little in the way of boundaries. Uh, forget penalty areas, water, those kinds of things. The whole nature of the game is to you hit it, you find it, you hit it again. Yeah. And you keep doing that until you hole out. Right. Yeah. That's golf. And, uh, I like that. I, I liked very much that you could hit a good one that didn't turn out so good. Yeah. You could hit one that's kind of a stinker and it could turn out great. You know, you, you never really kind of knew. And it just intrigued me. I just loved it. I just did. So uh, at any rate, uh, it was very, very hot that year yeah, and rather yeah. still. Yeah. So not facing a whole lot in the way of uh, elements. And uh, I, I do remember that the Scots were maybe the most sunburnt people <laughs> I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, there wasn't a cloud in the sky. It was hot, and, and it was uh, really something. Uh, I remember I remember staying at the Turnberry Hotel, yep. and uh, as well as my mom and dad and all that. And this was more money than I'd ever spent for a hotel room anywhere on the planet at that yeah, point. I can imagine. And, yeah, and I'm, I'm leading – I'm leading the championship. Now, remember, back then, it finished on Saturday. That's right, yeah. 
So Friday night, the third round has been completed. And of course you tee off so late in the day because it's like, I mean, it's, it's kind of strange, but at any rate, I finished my round and didn't play particularly well and uh, was no longer in the lead. But anyway, I wander into the hotel looking for dinner and after my round and was told that dinner hours had closed it was no longer available yeah (laughs) and we ended up having to drive down to uh uh oh gosh would it be girvin uh just south of there yeah the little town girvin is the next town yeah yeah, that, that may have been it. Went into a pub and had the best Chinese food I've ever had anywhere in my life. It was unbelievable, yeah. But it, that was very odd. At any rate, uh, what I remember most is for, from a golfing standpoint, obviously I played very well the first two days. And uh, and on Saturday, or Friday, I should say, uh, there was a thunderstorm. Mm. And uh, I've got a, I do have a photo, uh, not displayed, but of Hubert Green, I was paired with Hubert, and we were on the rocks down to the left of the eighth hole, I guess it was, yeah. down by the water. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, trying to get low because we had this thunderstorm go through. Uh, didn't do much in the way of rain, but but we had lightning. Uh, and then Sunday, or Saturday, can't make that connection. Uh, Saturday, I, I was in the group immediately ahead of uh, – Two guys, Tom Watson and Jack Nicholas. Yeah, th- those two guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, those two guys. And I had never seen anything like it. Uh, and if your memory will serve you going back to then, there was a period where uh, a time when Nicholas sat on his bag and said, get them under control yes that's right they were delirious at the birdie fest and the match that uh, nicholas and uh, watson were putting on uh and i was way out of my element way out of my element i think i shot 80 the last day really right. and, and, oh yeah i mean the crowds were roaring up every hole deliriously happy yeah at what was transpiring behind us and uh and it was dusty because it had been so hot and dry and their dust would choke you i mean it was it was really something and i i was i didn't do well at all but at any rate uh it it's kind of fun i didn't have an eyewitness view but i felt like i was kind of part of one of the greatest major championships ever played. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Yeah, it's it's, yeah. It's, still, it's still famous. Yeah, yeah. And I was looking at your record, though, Roger. You you didn't go back uh, to the Open until the Open <laughs> until it was back there at Turnberry in '86. What, As what, what, it turned what? out, and the reason for that being is I ended up marrying my wife now of forty-one years. Um, at what is now the John Deere Classic in the Quad Cities in the U.S. Yeah. And it was her hometown. Right. And and the place I first won, so it, it had a couple of tugs on my heartstrings. And, uh, you know, I just made a deal with her that, you know, I would play there. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't consider myself 
a world-class player that would go over there. And certainly there was a period where my game was such that who am I kidding? If I went over, I probably wasn't going to win or have a chance to win. So I just played at the Quad Cities. That's just how it turned out. Yeah, I was intrigued yeah. by that because obviously, you know, as you say, you took to it and you did well, at least for three rounds. And then, you know, it was nine years before you went back. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, um, well, it's just one of life. Life got in the way of me playing it. Yeah. I was looking also at your record, Roger, and, you know, I'm not going to blow smoke up your ass, but um, you, you were a better player than your record in the majors would suggest. I mean, it's yeah. it's not as nearly as good as I thought it was going to be when I looked it up. Um, obviously, yeah. with the exception of the notable exception of the 87 Masters. Um, again, a trivia question. Who's the guy who, if he'd shot par in the last round of the 87 Masters, would have won it? That's you. Me, yeah. What's your yeah, memories of that? Uh, that must be that must rank as your biggest disappointment as a player, I'm sure. Well, it's uh, one of my most fond memories, and also one that becomes more bittersweet the older I get. Uh, I shot 76 in the first round, and again, the the, the change had had come at Augusta where the greens had been converted from a Bermuda green base that was overseeded to a bent grass. And uh, uh, when we putted on them prior to that, uh, they were really fast compared to what else we played. But this this kicked it into another gear yeah, yeah, yeah. when they <laughs> bent grass. You know? and, and people would ask, well, what's it like putting there? You know, you'd say, well, probably three times a day on average, you'll have a putt that you look at and say, you know, if I just mess this up a little bit, I could put it right off the green. Yeah. You know, I mean, those face you all the time. Anyway, so I shot 76, windy, greens hard, and felt like I really played well. Uh, so not a good first day, but second day out early. Uh, before wind, because the, the the conditions kind of duplicated themselves in round two. Uh, but I got out early and I shot 66 and zoomed up the leaderboard. That ended up being, I think, tied with Norman for the low round of the tournament. Right. Uh, at any rate, uh, went out with Curtis Strange on Saturday. Trying to remember if we were the last group or second to last group, but anyway, shot seventy, and now I'm in the last group with Ben Crenshaw on Sunday, of course, who is Augusta's darling. Yeah, and everybody loves Ben everywhere. Yeah. Who doesn't? I love Ben. Everybody. Loves we all do. You're right. Yeah, sure. I mean, you got to love Ben. So, at any rate, I birdie the eighth hole and take the lead. And, and Crenshaw, as he was wont to do, visited most places on Augusta National yes. and was making a putt every hole. Yeah. And, okay, God love him. You know, you, you had to expect something like that. And he delivered. And we were kind of neck and neck there. But I got on the 10th tee uh, with the lead on Sunday. And they say, you know, the Masters doesn't begin until the second nine on Sunday. Well, they're not lying. They're not lying. No. Oxygen was a little hard to come by. I can imagine. Yes, yes. Yeah. 
and um, I bogeyed 10 and 11. Um, and then three putted f- from reasonably short distance at 14. Uh, at any rate, I, I fell back and then I did birdie 17, the 71st hole. And I had a chance to tie on 18 and what, what I will take with me to my grave is on 18, how many guys had the opportunity to win the masters tournament on the 72nd hole? Yeah. Yeah. You know, not. All that many. You anyway, be proud of that. I drove it yeah. right. I I drove it right in the heart of the fairway, and the hole was cut left where it traditionally is, front left. Mm-hmm. And I was going to use the backboard, a slope there behind the hole, to bring it back to the flag and hit a six iron. And it's as good a swing as I've ever made. I hit it exactly square and what I wanted to do, and. Uh, uh, I was waiting for the crowd to give it, you know, the, uh, yeah. Yeah. here it comes down and, you know, I'm going to have a putt to throw up on, you yeah. know, to yeah, yeah. I can make that. but then they kind of went, Oh, I knew right where it was. And it was just on top of the back ledge. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, then that's when it works against you that you've watched the tournament every year since you were a little, little kid, mm. because you know, nobody has ever made this putt that's right. ever. <laughs> you <know>? Yeah. <laughs> But I got it down at two, and I finished one shot out of the playoffs. So, uh, you know, to have that experience uh, was fabulous. To feel that I had a chance to win, which I did, uh, that that'll be a fond memory from forever. When I when I watch it, and it is one of the events that I watch every day, mm. every minute. Yeah, uh, and to think that. I could be in one of those neat little coats and standing there under the uh, yeah. oak tree and back. I mean, you know, it would be, uh, it hurts a little bit, but uh, a great experience. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. there's, you always, I would imagine you have mixed feelings about something like that. You know, there's the pride in playing as well as you did, but also the, the regret that you just weren't two shots better. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, you think if I shoot even far in the back nine, I win. Tiff Tough Hybrid Bermuda. Tough by name, tough by nature. This sports turf variety supplied by Lawn Solutions Australia is taking sport to another level. With superior drought tolerance, speedy recovery and toughness, Tiff Tough really is the smart grass. For more information and your nearest supplier, head to lawnsolutionsaustralia.com.au. Anyway, um, I, I'm conscious of the fact that I'm keeping you here, but they, uh, we haven't even talked about broadcasting yet. Um, what was the, the, the timing of that? I know it was you know, sort of 91, you kind of got into it, but um, were you ready for a change at that point, or how was your game, or where were you at sort of playing-wise? Well, uh, my game was in pretty good shape. Uh, you know, easily the best year I ever had was 85. Uh Nearly won a couple of times in 86, but didn't. Uh, in 87, I had that Masters. Uh, and then late in the year, the last event of the year was the Pensacola Open on Perdido Key outside of Pensacola. Yeah. And I struck a shot from out of the fairway, and the club caught on a tuft of grass, and I injured my left shoulder. Mm. As it turned out, I tore 
the labrum of my left shoulder. So I tried to play in 88 with it, and that was not working. So in 88, I had a surgery on it. And so I uh, came back in 89 and tried to play. And if, if I practiced very much at all, it would get inflamed and hurt. Right. Uh, so I, I couldn't give to the game what I needed to do. Uh, and then uh, uh, had it operated on again in 90 after trying to fight through it for a couple of years without much success. So uh, I was approached by NBC after that second surgery, if I would be interested in being involved in the Bob Hope Desert Classic broadcast. I've never done it before. Uh, and the reason they asked me is the Bob Hope tournament was a five round, 90 hole event, played over four different courses. And they just got the technology of a radio RF camera, radio frequency camera. Yeah. And so they wouldn't be tied to long cables and, and whatnot. And at any rate, so, you know, this is back in the days before cable television Yeah, and, and networks did two, two hour broadcasts every tournament. Yeah. Two hours Saturday, two hours Sunday, supposed to being on all day, every day now, uh, yeah. But at any rate, uh, the on Saturday, the celebrity part of the field was scheduled to play at what they called the home course, which was Indian Wells that year. So all the stars and whatnot would be there. Well, the leader could be on another golf course, and they'd never show a single shot the guy hit because they couldn't. So they asked, you know, they said there could be the need, you know, there could be a leader at another course. And would you do it? So fine. Well, as it turns out, the leader was Mark O'Meara on Saturday, starting the day. And he was playing Bermuda Dunes about seven miles away. So the deal I made with NBC at the time was that, you know, I'd played in enough Bob Hope tournaments. I was on the mend and if you let me broadcast the Ryder Cup later in the year, yeah. the war at the shore, the yes. big one that Gia was. I was going to ask you, know, you about that. Yeah, we'll get to that. Things, yeah. things had come to a head, and I wanted to be there, and the odds of me getting there as a player were next to nothing. So they said, yes, we'll let you do that. They need extra announcers. Great. So at any rate, they send me over there, and I said, no, I've never done this. you got to help me. And they go. We'll have a nice long rehearsal. Don't worry about a thing. You know, you know the game. This will be fine. So I go over there. None of my equipment works. <laughs> Nothing. So now they've got to send a repair crew from seven miles away to come out to try to fix my stuff. Yeah. So by the time they get through monkeying around with my stuff, we're on the air. So the first words I ever said were on the air. I had no rehearsal. Right. So I get through that. I go back 
to Indian Wells. And if you've ever been around a TV compound after a round is over, the broadcast is over, it's a ghost town in moments. Yeah. Everybody's gone. Yeah. So I go back, there's nobody there. And so I see the producer getting into his car when at the time was a fellow named Larry Cirillo. And he said the best things to me that have ever been said to me about television in that moment. And I said, you got to throw me a rope, pal. I'm drowning. I don't know what I'm doing. Your lingo, the things you talk about, I, I've never even heard. I don't know what you guys are talking about. And he looked at me and he said, listen, just be yourself. Don't try to be anything else. Just be yourself. Best advice I ever got. Yeah. So now you want to get to the Ryder Cup? We'll get to the Ryder well, Cup. Well, I wanted to ask you, at what point okay. or how long did it take before you start into Kiowa? Uh, how long did it take you to stop thinking of yourself as a player and start thinking of yourself as a broadcaster? Or is it still a mixture of the two? Well, um, I guess you're always kind of a player at heart, even though you can't do it anymore. Yeah. And, you know, the career, you know, this is my 30th year doing this. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, you know, when I first started doing it, uh, I was a player. You know, I knew all of them. They knew me, played with all of them. They played with me. Uh, and then things kind of morphed over time where I didn't know quite as many of them or play with them. Yeah. And now it's to the point where, oh, you played golf? Yes, I know. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But that's what happens. I mean, when I uh, – I, geez, for, for I, I'm going to say 25 years, Nicholas and I were the only two players to have played in every Memorial Tournament. Right. And that was something I took pride in. And I walked into registration one day and a young man named Charles Howell mm. was sitting there registering as well. And the guys behind the registration desk were very kind. They said, all right, our first champion is here. We can start the event now, you know, just being nice. Yeah. And, Charles looked up at me and he says, you won this tournament? <laughs> and I said, yeah, the, the first year, 1976. I said, you probably weren't even born yet. And he looked at me and went, no. <laughs> that's when it dawned on me. And that's when I started becoming not a player, Yeah, yeah. you know, and more of a, a media guy. I, I, and but I don't think that's a it's, bad it's thing, Roger. I mean, my my view and the uh, the best two broadcasters, former players who've been broadcasters, in my view anyway, are uh, Johnny Miller and and Peter Alice, both of yeah. whom were great players. But the 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 reason I thought they were part of the reason why they were so good at broadcasting was that they stopped thinking of themselves as players, and became broadcasters. I think there's a lot to that. Uh, yeah, I agree. Uh- you know, it's uh, it's hard to have colleagues, uh, people you compete with, this and that. It's at hard times to be critical as you should. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you see a misplay or a poorly thought out shot or strategy, um, that's your job as a broadcaster. Now. Johnny didn't have too much trouble with that. No, it probably took me a little. It probably took me a little 
longer. But, uh, uh, you know, it was, uh, well, what can I say? It's just been a, a long, lovely career. And as it turns out, I will be better known as a broadcaster. And it's not like I didn't have any success playing, but I will be better known. I will certainly have made more money and uh, whatnot being a broadcaster than I was a golfer. Yeah. 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 Right, let's get back to the Ryder Cup. I'm keen to talk to you about that. You've covered a few Ryder Cups, but I, I wanted to ask you first was, how close were you ever to actually playing in the damn thing? I was very close. Oh, let me see the year. Uh, it would have been 85 probably, or 87, maybe 87. I'm trying to think uh, because I'd had a good 85, 86. I played pretty well. And uh, back then there were no captain's picks. And I think I just missed. And it was either 85 or 87. I don't recall. Uh, But back, you know, back then the Ryder Cup wasn't what it is today. No, no. You know, it wasn't the Boilermaker. It was you know, really a goodwill match and I'm sure spirited competition. I mean, Hmm. you know, UK, Great Britain and Ireland, they wanted to win and we wanted to win and, uh, you know, competitors are competitors, but certainly in the, in the eyes of, uh, the world, it didn't have the same cachet. Yeah. Yeah. What, What do you think about what it's become? Oh boy. Um, well, it's, it, it has become a spectacular sporting event. Hmm. Okay. Uh, do I think at times golf leaves its genteel and uh, proper ways? Yes. Uh, and becomes something else uh, that, that I don't like to see? And uh, to be, you know, uh, perfectly honest, it happens too often or more often on this side of the pond yeah. than it does on your side of the pond. Yeah, I think the worst incidents with the crowds have been, the, most of them have been in America, you're right. So. Yeah, I, I, I think that's the case. But but it's it's not, you know, things get said over there too that shouldn't oh, be absolutely. said. Absolutely. The, the, there's, there's faults yeah. on both sides, definitely, yeah. Yes, yeah, yes, but certainly – I think America bears the brunt of that kind of stuff. So, and, and I think Kia was really the first one, Yeah, you know, and, and it, it, as to my television career, uh, you know, all I am is signed up to do the Bob Hope and the Ryder cup in 91. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm a player. Yeah. I'm healing. I'm going to go back to playing golf. And in, I was fortunate to have a 10 year exemption, mm. uh, which they issued back then for winners of the world series yeah. golf. Yeah. And, uh, so I was still exempt. So come Sunday singles, I have, you're going to love this. <laughs> the David Faherty. Oh, brilliant. And Stuart match. Excellent. I didn't know that. That's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and Faraday is 
ripping Payne Stewart apart. Yeah. Pounding Payne Stewart. Yeah. Okay. So if you if you remember back then, Mark Kalkovecchia, this was extremely yeah. spirited man, is playing Colin Montgomery. Yeah. And they're up ahead of our match a few groups. And uh Kalkovecchia is dormy four. Yeah. That was the terminology of the day. Yes. Not change. Yeah. But is. terminology of the day. So uh all Kalkovecchia had to do was bogey any one of the last four holes, and it looks like the U.S. is going to win the Ryder Cup. Well, he doesn't win any of the last four holes. <laughs> he loses all, which included, which included a, a kind of a meltdown at 17, a shank off the Tiana Par 3 into the water yeah. at any rate. So the executive producer of NBC Sports at the time was a fellow named Terry O'Neill. And he was in the production truck, standing behind the producer, adding whatever it is he wants into the show and so on and so forth. And his voice comes into my ear saying, Roger, leave your group. That's over. Go find Mark Kalkovecchia and interview him. Oh, my goodness. So I'm doing what I'm told. So and I go and I find Kalkovecchia. He's with Peter Co- Peter Costas, yeah, coach, yeah. who is both both my instructor and his. Right. Peter was there doing the broadcast for USA Network on Friday. Yeah, that wasn't on a network. Friday was USA. So I find him in the USA trailer in the TV compound, and Mark is bent over. Uh, a trash can in there uh, being violently ill. Wow. And kind of shrieking and his eyes are swollen shut. I mean, he, he thinks he's cost the U S the Ryder cup. Yeah. So he looks up at me and Peter looks at me and I go, okay, guys, I got it. You know, I'm not going to do that. I'm a player. I got to, I'm going to have to play with Mark Alcovet. <laughs> you know, I'm not, you know, plus I don't know clinically, you know, what would be a nervous breakdown, mm. but I know Calcovec has had enough. Yeah. Okay. He's had enough and he's not ready to talk. So out I go, I walk over to our production truck, open the door and there's Terry O'Neill standing in the doorway. And I said, he said, I thought I told you to find Calcovec in an interview. Now, I'm a golfer. I'm not a TV guy. Yeah. And I said, well, I found him. He's here in the compound, but he can't talk. And he says, I said, go find Mark Calcovec in an interview. <laughs> yeah. And I said, he can't, he can't talk. Yeah. You know, he, no, stay with him. He'll talk. And I said, I got a better idea for you. Why don't you stay with him? And maybe he'll talk to you, <laughs> but I'm not doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I shut the door. They didn't ask me to do another thing the rest of the day. I was done. I can imagine. Yeah. 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 And I'm thinking, well, that's it for TV. Big deal. I'll go back to playing. Right. Three weeks later, they called me. The same man called me and offered me a job. Yeah. It was maybe, the best, that? maybe the best thing you ever did. 
<clears throat> I got no idea at any rate. So uh, back then, when I first signed with NBC, uh, they were only doing a few events a year. Their broadcast schedule wasn't what it would be now. Uh, so I could play because what I had found is that I couldn't play as much as I used to. I had the luxury of this exemption yeah. where I could play some golf and do some TV and maybe it would be a good idea to get my foot in the door yeah. on this thing. And then when it turned out in 95, when uh, NBC garnered the rights to the USGA events, the US Open yeah. and Opens and Amateurs and stuff, uh, then I had to make a choice. Their, their schedule expanded and my exemption was running out and I was in my early forties and, you know, I, I had to make a choice of some kind and I figured, and I think rightly so that if I was going to be the next Jack Nicholas, I probably would have gotten that done by now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good point. <laughs> Yeah, I jumped on the TV deal, and uh, it turns out it certainly was the right choice and one I've enjoyed a lot. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you, I mean, to sort of talk to myself, I'll ask Roger what, what have been the highlights of his broadcasting career. I mean, I thought, what a silly question, because I'm pretty sure that a good number of them at least will be involving Tiger Woods. You've been very lucky to be up close and see him probably at, at his best. You know, um, that must have been something to see that close well yeah without doubt and and that's one of the greatest things about what my particular role is and sometimes people don't understand what a myopic view i have hmm. of of a golf tournament uh they're watching all the shots and i'm seeing two guys yeah basically play you know, on the weekend uh and there is the beauty uh, therein lies the beauty of what I do and I to this day still excites me and I still love I'm watching the best players in the world playing their best yeah while they're at their best and when you got to catch Tiger at his best oh boy I mean there was nothing like it I mean I had played with Jack when Jack was in his prime and yeah uh, you know, Tiger, you know, and I, and I always tell people, you know, Jack Nicholas is the greatest golfer of all time. His record demands that. Okay. But Jack Nicholas couldn't play golf like Tiger Woods. I mean, that, I kind of agree with that. Golf. Yeah. I think Tiger's, yeah. Tiger's best golf is the best golf we've ever seen. I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. When you look at him in 2000, are you kidding me? Yeah. Win the U.S. Open at Pebble Beach by 15. <laughs> no, yeah. And then go win the Open by eight. Yeah. I mean, come on. And there was nobody to touch him. He was he was unbelievable. I mean, he really was. He he's, he did things on the golf course that just made you go, how does he do that? And when he really needed one, it always went in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, think about 2008 at Torrey Pines. Yeah. The party makes in the last green, and they show they show the replay of it. this thing's bouncing over the broccoli tops of Poana and moving around and goes in. But as you stood there by the 18th green, there were these thousands and thousands of people, 
And each and every one of them knew that butt was going in. Yeah. I was one no of those No matter people. what. Yeah. I saw, I so was did Rocket. Yeah. You knew it was going in. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, so what would be some of the other highlights that, that Tiger's done, that, that shots he's hit, and you've just gone, wow? Oh, geez. Well, there's one, I guess, maybe my my best-known call uh, was on the sixth hole at Pebble Beach in Friday's round in 2000 at the U.S. Open. Yeah. And I would be in the tower at 18 – uh, with uh, Chris Berman from ESPN. Yeah. Early coverage was on ESPN. And Tiger drove it in the right rough. Now, we'd seen players drive it in that right rough, and it was like automatic pitch out to the fairway short of this giant hill and cliff that you'd have to play across with your second if you were in the fairway. But now you've got to do that for your third. So all of a sudden, Tiger wanders in there with this iron and just makes this most unbelievably hard swing. And the ball comes up and out. He's trying to knock it up on top of this cliff. The next thing you know, the ball is rolling up on the edge of the green. And I said, it's just not a fair fight. <laughs> yeah, that's good. And it wasn't. It wasn't a fair fight. No, not it then was it wasn't. No. Yeah, right. That's one that really stands out to me. Gosh, there have been so many. It's hard to single them out. I can imagine, Obviously, yes. The putt at, uh, at 18 at Torrey in 2008. Um, uh, in the – now I'm trying to remember if it was in the final round or the playoff. Tiger on the 15th hole at Torrey Pines drove it way right into a fairway bunker. Had to play this humongous fucking thing. And, and knocked it on the green reasonably close. I mean, it was just, yeah. you can't do it. You know, that's what he did. He did stuff you go, you can't do it. Yeah. 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 I wish I could have better recall for it. No, him. no, it's not. It's just, I, 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 it's always difficult off the top of your head. But the, I, the, yes. the, the thing about him was, and you mentioned it, um, Nicholas did the same. When they absolutely had to make a putt, they always did. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, and, I remember, you know, those, those, they're wired different. Mm. Okay. They're just wired different. And, uh, uh, from, from having one, uh, that first memorial, uh, you know, it probably gave me a little better chance to be around Jack yeah. at, at times maybe than I otherwise might have. And I'm sitting after, uh, around in practice, I'm sitting in the uh, grill room there at Muirfield Village, and you know Jack comes in and says, "Hey, can I join you?" Yeah, please do. Yeah, you know we just get to chatting, and and uh, uh, you know I said, "Jack, I got a question for you." And I, I said, "How is it you never play bad? Hmm. You never play bad. You know, you just." I mean, maybe around here and there, but I mean, you look at his major records in the seconds and the thirds and the this and that, and it's, it's ridiculous. You know, how is it you never play bad? And he looked at me and said, because I won't let it happen. Hmm. So you walk away from that. You think, well, that's kind of a simple 
flip answer. And then you stop in your tracks and you go, well, that's pretty profound. Yeah. You know, because his mind would not let it happen. It was not acceptable and was not going to happen. And nobody ever saw Jack Nicholas tap in a putt with the back of his putter blade. Mm. They, you know, every shot, every time got full attention. Yeah. And, uh, and, and Tiger really was the same way. You never saw him give up, even, even if he was having a bad week in his bad years. He tried on every shot as hard as he could. I mean, the thing about Nicholas yeah. is, I mean, the, the 18 majors is mind-boggling enough, but he was first or second in 37 majors. Think about that. Oh, yeah. Oh, and then added in the thirds. Yes. And now all of a sudden, now all of a sudden you're talking like, what, uh, 15 years he finished first, second, or third in every major. <laughs> you know, I mean, pretty amazing. Yeah, mind you, I've also got a theory, and you know, see what you think of this. Um, that there's a case to be made that Sam Snead might have been the greatest golfer of all time because he was great longer than anybody else was great. Uh, you know, his longevity uh, was unbelievable, and I'll, I'll tell a, a story. Uh, in 1999, the U.S. Open that. Payne Stewart won at Pinehurst, rest his soul. And we were going to do uh, an interview, Dan Hicks and I, with Sam. Yeah. And because he was like the king of Pinehurst, he had won jillions of events yeah. on Pinehurst, number two. So his uh, manager and people were saying, listen, Sam has good days. And not so good days, you know. And so uh, the decision was made that we would interview uh, Sam on tape. And if he was, we don't want to embarrass the great man. And if he was, you know, having a good day, great. And if he wasn't, well, thanks. And we're not going to use, you know. Yeah. And so at any rate, we're asking him questions about the U.S. Open and this and that. And he's going, well, there was that time there and this happened and over there, not saying the whole, the tournament, the year, nothing. It was just not working. Mm -hmm. So our producer is in our ear saying, this isn't going to work. Thank him. And, you know, that's it. And as the producer is saying that, Dan Hicks asked Sam, do you ever think about not having won the U.S. Open? And at that split second, he kicked in. Right. And he said, I think about it every day. Yeah. And at that moment, he was totally cogent. And and Dan asked him, you know, you finished in the top 10 in a major championship well into your 50s. Yeah. You know, what did you owe your longevity? You know, and he said, well. He says, I got plenty of sleep. He says, I didn't drink much. Yeah. And then he got this little grin on his face. Yeah, I can see. <laughs> but I sure did shake those bed springs now and then. 
Well, that was always and his reputation. Decision, yeah. The decision was made not to air that interview. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was pretty cute. Yeah, yeah. You um, yeah. you mentioned um, you know, not winning the U.S. Open there. Um, the other name that always comes to mind is obviously Phil Mickelson for that. I mean, uh, yeah. and I wanted to ask you about the in particular winged foot in 2006 because you you probably don't remember but back in the day when i was doing a sunday newspaper column you were the subject of that uh column that day <clears throat> i got into you know talking about your mother and kirk and tillich and your father and i actually got a very nice email from your dad not long after that thanking me for doing that column, ah. but uh which is very nice of him but um yeah i wanted to ask you about that you obviously got a, a close-up view of what transpired on the the 18th hole there at winged foot. Um, looking at it yes. then, what were you saying? And looking at it now, what do you think? Well, forgive me if you're hearing that noise, a garbage truck is going All right. on my front porch. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> uh, at any rate, Phil was setting about doing something that was unthinkable because he hit it all over the golf course. Now, everyone knows in their right mind you win U.S. Opens by hitting the ball in the fairway, on the green, and that's the proper way to do it. Well, Phil was everywhere, being Phil. Yeah. And yeah. and he gets up to the 18th tee, and it's it's a, as they all are, a narrow par four that would go out flat, and then the green, the hole would dog leg left, and the green would sit up on a perch. Yeah. And the left side of the fairway really wasn't premium. You pretty much had center to right side of the fairway was where you needed to be. Yeah. Yeah. Phil pulls out a driver and, and Johnny's going, what is he thinking? You know, and this, and this is what makes for great television and made Johnny great. It's easy to say after the fact, I can't, believe he did this but we were saying it prior and i was involved in that discussion with johnny i don't understand anyway he hits this thing miles to the left and i think my call that's left way way left bounces off a tent comes down now fortunately into an area where the gallery is all walked the lie is pretty bare yeah and now there's this gap in these huge trees up ahead of him that maybe you could fit a very, very small something through. But, yeah. you know, Phil's looking right at that, that deal. Well, he tries that, fires it right into the trees. Now it comes down again. And uh, he had a shot to hit up and over, which he hits in a bunker left of the green. And it was just. It was just, it was a meltdown is what it was. Anyway, he, he makes double bogey and, and, uh, you know, it's, it, it is a shame that he would finish runner up six times in that event and not win it. It really is because, uh, you know, for him, for him to win a U.S. Open with the style of golf he plays, mm. And the way he drives the ball yeah. would would be pretty remarkable. Yeah. You know, the one thing about, about Arnold Palmer, who had a brilliant open record, only won it once, mm -hmm. but a brilliant U.S. open record, 
because he was a great driver at a golf ball. I mean, he'd hit he'd hit twelve lasers a day, and maybe two that were kind of low and left. But, mm, yeah. but you know, he would drive the ball beautifully. But Phil, no, I mean, he doesn't do that. No. So for him to win a U.S. Open would be uh, a remarkable feat in many ways. Did you see much of what Monty did? Were you aware of what Monty had done just before Phil playing the I, left? No. no. You know, again, I see two guys. Yeah. He was up ahead, and I know, uh, I knew that something bad had happened. That was obvious from crowd response, this and that, but I didn't know what. Yeah. I didn't know what. Is yeah. that is that the worst kind of meltdown that you've seen? I mean, how, and, and how difficult is it to, to commentate and or comment on something like that as it's happening without being too harsh, you know you've got a you've got a sort of balance what you what you're saying. I would imagine. Yeah, it, it is. I, I don't know if it's the worst meltdown I've seen. Um, uh, one that that comes. Well, of course, I was a kid. Palmer's kind of meltdown at Olympic Club. In, yeah, yeah. Sixty six was was awful. Uh, again, at Olympic Club just recently, Lexi Thompson yeah. uh, kind of folded up in the U.S. Women's Open. Uh, they happen, but it is uncomfortable uh, when you see it happening. And probably what makes it so uncomfortable is you know that it's about to happen. You can see it. Yeah. You know, you can see it coming. And it's and that is uncomfortable. And you don't like to be involved in those. No, I mean, I just say because it's. And I know that you know television has a broadcasting is not like journalism. But we can be a bit harder on people <laughs> when they do things like yes. that. So you've got a, you've <laughs> right. got a fine line, balancing line to to walk on. I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a different uh, type of journalism. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, just to, to finish up, um, Roger, um, how much do you owe to Gary Coke and the Liberty Mutual? Three senior wins it's got here. All with Gary Coke, it says here. So. What the hell? You think I had nothing to do with that? <laughs> I knew you would say that. I knew you'd say that. Uh, no, uh, Gary is a player uh, that to this day is still a fine player. Yeah. And he made his choice to get into television years ago because the game was just kind of driving him nuts. Yeah. And he didn't want to feel like that anymore. Uh, but he could still really play. So uh, I hitched uh, my wagon to a very good horse. And he was certainly the uh, the leader of our group. We we build ourselves as the odd couple. Right. He was Felix, and I was Oscar. Right. <laughs> I was I was the mess that would get there kind of late. He was always in charge of the scorecard and making sure we know what times we were playing. You know, making the reservations for dinner in the evening. You know, he would handle all the details. And I was there trying to get him to relax and just play. Yeah. And that was pretty, pretty much the limit of what I did. Yeah. Plus, plus Roger, of course, that he's never won a tournament in Morocco. Oh, yeah. How about that? Yeah. Yeah, he never won that one. That was that was interesting. That was a – it was not yet on a European tour. It was kind of a pro ami thing. But yeah. uh, uh, that really was pretty instrumental for me uh, because I had gone through some, some dark years mm. uh where my instructor had passed and he was the only instructor i ever had i was lost and searching for help and um at any rate a, a win there kind of validated uh 
that the work I was doing was positive. Mm-hmm. And then I, I, I carried that with me. So that helped a lot. That really did. Yeah. 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 As I say, there's not too many people. Um, uh, you're the first person I've interviewed who's who's A, one in Morocco, and is B, being the California State Amateur Champion and the California State Open Champion. I mean, it's a very unique deal. I mean, isn't that I great research? Jack Nicholas's name on any of those trophies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not, not yet. Anyway, not yet. Yeah, right. <laughs> Roger, I'm uh, I'm aware that I've kept you for nearly an hour and a half here. I've been very grateful for your time. Uh, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed talking to you. It's been brilliant. Thank you for your time. Well, you're more than welcome, John, and I can't wait till we can catch up eyeball to eyeball again. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. What a storyteller, and so much more to Roger Maltby's career than I realised, and I hope that you, like me, have come away from that chat knowing more about the man than when we started. That's episode 49, Done and Dusted, but make sure to join us when we come back in two weeks for the next instalment of The Thing About Golf. <laughs>